often believe that it is the most important book in the Bible because, and well, you're going to see why as we move ahead. But I believe that God has so much to speak to our hearts. So let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you. Just at the beginning of five weeks, we commit this time to learn and to grow from your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, Lord. And just how you culminate uh, all of biblical history, redemptive history, Lord, comes together. And we can look, even Jesus, as you give the, the framework for the book of Revelation, things that were, things that are, things that are yet to come. Father, we want to be like the sons of Issachar, where it was said in the Old Testament, they knew the times in which they lived. And I pray that you would show us the hour in which we live. Help us now, Lord. Hide me behind the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are notes. Hopefully everybody has received them. You're not going to get 15 pages of notes each Wednesday night. But there is so much detail in the first several chapters. And it lays a groundwork, a foundation for the rest of our study. And so I really felt that it would be good for you to have this. It's more of, and you'll hear me use this word, an exegetical approach. That means that we're drawing out of. Exegetical or exegesis means that you're drawing meaning out. What we don't want to do and what a lot of people do with study of future things and prophecy is they read into the Bible. And they have some presuppositions and they will tell the Bible and tell the Lord what they want to find there. What we want to do is draw meaning out. And so just the the format for the notes that you have. And um, so if we could go to, we'll see the notes, okay? You have those, and I have a handy-dandy little, let's see, laser printer, laser pointer, not printer. Um, And I will just point out as we go along where we are in some of the notes. Again, 15 pages. I'm just going to hit highlights But we're taking this verse by verse, we're unpacking, we're unfolding, again, exegetical study to draw meaning out. And so tonight, I think what we will do is just begin to read through these early verses. There is so much to be said early on, but I think we can draw that out as we're actually in the text Um, You will see very early, and let me just mention this, there is a book here as well, Conquest and Glory. Okay, I'm looking for, here we are. Um, Conquest and Glory is a book that I wrote several years ago. It's a commentary in the book of Revelation, um, but only the first seven chapters. However, there is um, one-third of this book is a, what I call a theological overview. And I think that's important. In other words... It's one of the reasons why I believe that the book of Revelation is so important. There are 11 major areas of Bible study in the Bible. Everything from studying Israel to angels to Christology, the study of Christ, to theology, the study of God, 11 basic. But then when you break that down, there are like 48 different areas of teaching. Here's why I think Revelation is so important. All 48 of those major areas of teaching are culminated or fulfilled in the book of Revelation. We don't know how it all ends until you get to the book of Revelation. Now, I understand that the book of Revelation can be a little bit scary sometimes and daunting, and a lot of Christians ignore it. And there's a lot of controversy in even how to approach the book of Revelation. Um, Wide range of different approaches, interpretation. 
I will tell you that our basic approach as the Assemblies of God, as, as evangelical believers, most evangelical believers will see that there is something yet to be fulfilled, that there is literal meaning in this book of Revelation. And that's how we're going to see this. Um, we'll lay a groundwork tonight, but as we move ahead in the weeks coming, um, we will speak of some of the current events, things that are happening in the world, okay? Um, so we'll speak that way, but I think it's most important to get a biblical framework. We've got a lot to cover in five weeks. So let me just mention, it would be good for you to have the, a copy of the book because I will be referring um, you have notes in hand that will help you. We're, we're going to cover, I don't know, maybe one-third of what's in these notes, but at least it's, it's a guide for us. But if you want to drill down even more, then the textbook would be helpful for you, okay? Um, I'm just, um, just a suggested donation of $10. That literally just covers my cost. I have no interest in making any money from that, but please... I would urge you to get a copy of the book there in the back, okay? Um, you may even want to grab a copy now. Don't even worry about paying. If you can later on, that's fine. But if you didn't get a copy, this is available. All right, now, let's begin to read in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. And Pastor Jeff mentioned that we would wait until we have question and answer time. But let me say this, because it's going to be hard to hold on to some of these questions to the very end. I think what we'll do, because we're going to endeavor to cover all of just an overview of chapters 1 through 3 tonight. I think what we'll do when I get to the end of a section, then... Then I will ask if there are any pertinent questions, and uh, we will still. So let me do it this way. I tell people in the church that I'm pastoring right now, it's in the west side of Philadelphia, Upper Darby. I say, listen, we never end services. <laughs> if you want to wait around the altar and, and pray, seek the face of God, or like on Wednesday nights, and I have been you know, teaching through the summer, so somebody else is stepping in there. But I say, listen, if you want to hang in later on, and we just have question and answer time, and people are staying. So we will, after 8.15, each of these Wednesday nights, please know that if there are pressing questions that you have, I will stay. Um, we'll, however, okay, we'll just, we'll just delve into the word. Let's go. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And again, just follow in the notes, and you can add as I will spontaneously add some notes to this. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Let's just stop there for a moment in the middle of verse 1. The revelation. Apocalypsis. You have that word, I believe, here. We get the word apocalypse, and usually that word means uh, traumatic things of biblical proportion, last days kind of things. They have movies called the apocalypse and so on. Well, it all comes from this word. An apocalypse is literally revelation. It means a disclosure, an unveiling. Uh, in the Spanish language, if you have a Spanish Bible, the book of Revelation is called the apocalypsis, okay? It is the revelation. And you need to know that in that day, and actually for about 350 years, there what was what was known as apocalyptic literature. The Jewish people especially would use literature like this, and it was usually in code form, okay? So this would have started about 200 years before the Lord Jesus, about 150 years following, and the Jewish people would use this 
um, and, and it was written in sort of cryptic language to keep it away from their enemies so that they wouldn't understand. So if Rome is being seen in apocalyptic literature and they're the enemy, um, the Jewish people are using symbols. You're going to see that. For instance, the number seven, you're going to see that. Fifteen different sevens in the book of Revelation. You're going to see colors that have meaning and animals that have meaning and so on. This is all part of what's called apocalyptic literature. It was a certain style of literature. But I got to tell you, the book of Revelation broke the mold. It was completely different from all other apocalyptic literature of the day. And the largest reason for that is that it pointed above all to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also did this, which other apocalyptic literature of the day didn't do. It connected with biblical prophecy. And so I want to urge you, if you have a heart to understand prophecy, Old Testament to New Testament, first of all, you, you can't really understand, fully understand the book of Revelation without knowing the backstory, the, the, the Old Testament. There is so much in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, just recently as I was a teaching pastor, more recently in South Jersey, we spent, what, seven months, week after week, seven months in the book of Revelation, and then we studied the book of Daniel, okay, for another, I think, four or five months. You have to know that the book of Revelation, given by inspiration of the Lord, like we see in verse 1, God gave this, the Father gave this to Jesus to give to us so that we could understand God's wrap-up, how it all comes together. And that's what's so unique about the book of Revelation. It brings us, in classes we talk about redemptive history. It's God's story. And it is even before the foundation of this earth, before the curse ever came in the Garden of Eden, God already had the cure. There's a powerful verse. You may want to note it. We're going to come to it in a couple of weeks. Revelation 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 verse 8 says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. In other words, in the mind of God, God knew that we would fail him. God knew that the curse was coming. I love this. Before the curse was the cure. God already had the plan of salvation. But we call it redemptive history, cover to cover, Genesis, right from the very beginning, all the way to the last verses of Revelation chapter 22. And, 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 and what I need you to see is that God brings all of this together in the book of Revelation to wrap this up. The apocalypsis, the revelation of. Now, we're not going to take every single word, okay? We'll never get through 22 chapters, but I tell you the word of there is important. And some versions will say from, okay? From or of. The preposition that's used there in the Greek language can mean both. In other words, it is a revelation of who Jesus is. You need to see that. That is, we're gonna, it's, this is all about Jesus. As a matter of fact, you've got this right from the start here. If you look in your notes, there are three opening passages. We're just getting into the first, the prologue, verse 1. It is all about Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. But it's also, it's, it's about him, but it's also from him. It's of him. He is the one who's giving John this revelation. His spirit is here tonight to give us the same revelation, the same unfolding, revealing that God gave to John. The same spirit of God is here to do that tonight. Let's go on. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, you and I, what must soon take place. 
Now, I have, I'm just highlighting here and there. Now, we're not Greek scholars tonight. Maybe somebody is here tonight. But I do love the Greek language, love to teach it, love to, to delve into it because it's rich in meaning. And once in a while, I will bring out a word because it has special relevance for us. And I love this, the revelation, what must soon take place in the Greek language, and takas, we get tachometer. If you might have a tachometer in your car, okay, we get that tachometer from this word. And it means that it's coming with speed. It's coming with acceleration. Things are moving quickly. If you, well, I was just driving on the turnpike. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Anybody have the experience? You understand what? I just have to pause, okay? If you're driving in the turnpike, we'll just pray, and the Lord give us grace, and came on 195 and people going 85 miles per hour in work zones and so on. Um, Things are, when you're speeding like that, the signs are coming at you faster and faster. That's what this means. The signs of the times are coming at us with rapidity, with acceleration. I believe that's happening. That's what this means. It's soon. It's accelerating is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Once we hit this, it's going to come faster and faster. A lot of people have asked me, so where do you think we are in all of this? I absolutely believe we're at 1159 in the clock, okay? 1159. Like Jesus is about, I've got my rapture shoes on, we're ready here, okay? All right? I absolutely believe that we are in the last days. I believe that with all of my heart. I don't believe, and people have asked, you think we're in the tribulation yet, and so on. No, I don't. You will hear me, and I understand that this can be controversial, But by the time next week, we're going to get into some material in chapters. We have a lot to cover fast to get there, but chapters 5 and 6. And as we move through these chapters 5, 6, 7, you will understand why I have a firm belief that Jesus will rapture his bride before the tribulation. Part of it is that I don't think people understand what the tribulation is. A lot of people say, oh, you just want an escape hatch. You just want things easy for Christians. No, more people are dying for their faith right now than ever before in world history. You're not going to hear that in the news, but that's the facts, okay? No, we need to understand that there is wrath that is coming. Ten times in the book of Revelation, it says God is going to pour out his wrath. This is no, Nobody would have a problem with God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? We understand that from the word of God. We understand why God took Lot and his wife and daughter out, you know, they, they, take them out of the city. There weren't even ten righteous, so even if there are three or four, take them out, and then the judgment falls. Let me tell you, the tribulation is going to be Sodom and Gomorrah on steroids, okay? Where God says, I've had it. I draw the line. This is it. You will see tonight, we'll get there yet by 8.15, we'll get to chapter 3 and verse 10 where God says, if you will follow me, you're an overcomer, I will keep you, ek, it means out of the tribulation, the trial that's coming upon the face of the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we are not appointed to wrath. I believe that Jesus already took my wrath. So when you understand what the tribulation actually is, not just a hard time of persecution for believers, and by the way, people will get saved during the tribulation and lay their lives down for their faith in Christ. But I read in Isaiah chapter 24, I think it's right about verse 7, Isaiah 24 says that few will survive in that day. It's not going to be just a little bit difficult, uh, and Christians will grow through that. That's not what the intention is. So we're going to look at what the tribulation is, but I don't think we're there. 
But what I do believe is this. I believe we're in the beginning of sorrows right now. That's where I believe that we are in space and time, in God's framework, the beginning of sorrows. If you look, and I don't think I have the verse here, so let me give this to you. Matthew chapter 24. Let's turn there for a moment. Matthew chapter 24. I want to just point this verse out. And again, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without weaving together biblical themes. Matthew chapter 24 is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus is teaching from the Mount of Olives. Three of the Gospels have very, very similar material from three different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, Luke. But Matthew says this. Matthew chapter 24. He says in verse... Eight, And I'm reading from the New, New International Version, but this is the 84 version. So it says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains, the beginning of sorrows. It was the word for a woman giving birth who is having contractions. That was the Greek word here. And it will move with acceleration as we get closer. But you want to know something, what Luke brings in when Luke is quoting Jesus? Go to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21, and you tell me if we're not living this right now. Luke chapter 21 and verse 11. Now, this is the same context. Sermon, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is teaching about the very last days. And he says this, There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, fearful events and great signs from heaven. He's not yet talking about the tribulation in this passage. He's talking about a time before that. By the way, Pestilence, you see that word there? You know what it means in the Greek language? Infectious maladies, infections. God said in the beginning of sorrows, there would be worldwide infections. We're beginning to see this like never before. Who would have thought, right? Medical science, how could, this, how could this be that it brings the world to its knees overnight, okay? I'm sure, you know, your church was affected as all churches were affected by COVID and so on. I think it's all part of it. And if that, I, I think if human beings think that they're going to resolve all of these issues, no, there is something that has been unleashed, okay? And I happen to believe we're in the beginning of sorrows. Things will increase Let's go on. Let's, let's, let's continue on in the notes here. Let me go back to Revelation. Are you seeing that we've got a lot to cover? <laughs> it's gonna, you believe in miracles, don't you? We're going we're gonna to believe God for a miracle to get through. Here we go. Who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God. This is from him. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'll just comment on that. When he says in verse 2, who testifies, you see it there, testifies. And then a little bit later on, the testimony. These are two words. They're, they're cognates. And I think I'm, there we are. They, they, it's, it's the, the, the root word here is martyreo. We get martyr from it. To testify means I know what I saw, I know what I heard, and you can't take it from me. It's, it's Peter saying in the book of Acts, we must speak about what we know, okay? And this is what he's saying. I am suffering as a, as a martyr. And, and, and John, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more as we move ahead uh, a little bit later about the whole backstory and where, why John is where he is and why. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But you've got to know he's a martyr. He's, he's one who, and, and so are we, by the way. 
You may not lay your life down for the gospel, but people are. About two to 300,000 people a year right now are laying their life down for the gospel. They are true martyrs. But really, martyr is what you and I are. We are eyewitnesses. We know that we know. And that's what John is saying. I know what I've heard, and I'm giving you what I heard. Let's go on. Blessed. Oh, just stop there. I'm telling you, every word has meaning here. Blessed, makarios, it's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's this word. It does mean happy, but it doesn't just mean a smile on your face happy. It means something that is so deep-rooted. So there's, in other words, this is the only book of the Bible. It's part of the reason I think it's the most important. It's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing for those that read it. Okay? So we're blessed people tonight. Let's go on. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Prophecy. I'll just say this very, very quickly. Prophecy means to speak forth. And it can mean, and I think you have this here as well, right? Forthtelling and foretelling. We need to understand that not all prophecy is the future. You're going to see prophecies in chapter 2 and 3 concerning the seven churches where John is writing for Jesus and he's forthtelling. He's speaking forth under the anointing of the Spirit. He's writing what God gives him. When your pastor preaches the word of God, it may not be pointing future things, but it is forthtelling what God is saying. God is anointing those words to speak forth what God wants by the Spirit of God. So please understand that prophecy is not just future. It's what God is saying to us right now, okay? And that's what he's saying here, this word. Um, and, and blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart, because, let's go to this, because the time is near. It's another word that means imminent. You may want to jot this down, and I think I, do I have that word? Yes. Look at this word imminent. There are three words that are spelled very, very similar, but this word imminent means any moment. In our fellowship, the Assemblies of God, we believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. It is a, just a bedrock doctrine teaching for us. We believe that we don't have time to waste. We believe that Jesus can come back. And we believe this, you know, from the inception of our movement 100 plus years ago, we believe that Jesus could come back at any time. That imminent return means we've got to win the loss now. We need to live holy lives. Don't play games with God. Because Jesus is coming back at any moment. That's what this says. Let's go on to a second part now in these opening passages. Now John greets and brings a hymn of praise. And I'm just going to hit highlights. I think we see there's so much here. And you have questions. We'll, we'll, we'll hit these in just a moment. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. You will be introduced to seven churches. These were real churches, okay? When I began to write Conquest and Glory, I spent three weeks, and I went to Turkey and went to Greece, and I wanted to stay there. I stayed nine days in Patmos, stayed. I went to the cave where it's believed that John actually lived for those two years. It was an incredible experience. But I went to these seven churches, got to all of them except Laodicea. The sun was going down, and my GPS was trying to kill me, but that's a whole other story, okay? It was getting me lost in places I didn't need to be. So it was, it was crazy, but um, these seven churches are, you know, they were real churches in that day, but we're going to understand why Jesus chose to send the original messages to these seven churches. 
So, but that's how he addresses this. Let's go on. He says, grace and peace. Charis, grace. A gracious bestowment, it means something you don't deserve from God. I like to think of grace as what God gives us, what we don't deserve is grace. They're gifts from God. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And he says this is all about God's grace, and it is. Grace and peace, this, this word, and do I comment there? I believe I do. I give you this rest and calm assurance from him. Now, let's, let's, let's look at this for a moment because you do see the Trinity. From him who is and who was and who is to come. First, he refers to the Father. By the way, Trinity, because um, you're going to see the Trinity here. You'll see the Trinity in the book of Revelation. If you go to that last part in the book, that whole last section, you can find, uh, it's, it's like an exhaustive concordance of the book of Revelation. Every phrase having to do with the Father. Every phrase having to do with the Son. Every phrase having to do with the Holy Spirit. You say, I can't wrap my mind around the Trinity. Well, nobody can. It's a mystery, okay? But I do think God's given us a little clue. Let me give this to you. I love this. In mathematics, you all remember math class. Remember the one with the little three above it? One to the third power. One times one times one still equals one. You have three ones, and yet it still equals one. I think that God has built into nature itself a way of showing us. Now, this is a whole other teaching, but even in the Hebrew language, when it says the Lord our God is one, it's not just the word one. It's a word for a compound one. In other words, within the one, echad, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a whole other teaching in itself, but we will see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. And the Father is referred to as the one from him who is and who was and who is to come. We remember in Exodus 3.14, Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And, and, and God says, you, you let them know I am that I am. Okay? In the Hebrew language, it's, it's four letters. There are consonants. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. So in English, we would say Y-H-W-H. We think probably Yahweh is the way, but we really don't know how to pronounce the sacred name of God. But Yahweh, I am that I am, means the self-existent one. You see, we all, hmm, let me mess with you. We don't live, by the way. We are lived we are lived through. You don't have life in yourself. You have life because God gave. Only God has life. God is the source of life. He gives you. You are lived through, but he's the one who lives. Nobody starts him. Nobody stops him. You couldn't choose the day when you were born. You couldn't choose, and you never will die. That's God's doing. The image of God is upon you. And so we need to recognize that he alone is the self-existent one, the life source in himself. That's how John looks at the Father. But then it goes, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now we speak about the Spirit of God. Seven spirits. This is one of those sevens in the book of Revelation. So let me give you this very, very quickly. And, and you know, we, we could spend hours just laying groundwork, but I'm going to weave it in here. Sevens is one of those ways in apocalyptic literature that you have symbolism, keeping it from the enemies, but those who want to delve deeper. God says, okay, in the Hebrew mind, sevens was a word, a seven 
is a word of perfection or completion. That's how the Jewish people looked at sevens. Even in the book of Daniel, the prophecy of 77s. It speaks of God's complete plan or perfect plan. And so, seven, are there seven Holy Spirits? Well, I know one person that wrote a book about that, but it wasn't theologically grounded. Um, no, there are not seven Holy Spirits, but there is a perfect sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you need to think of the seven as God is saying, before my throne, we're going to see this next week in chapter 4, are seven like burning oil pots. And they represent the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit going out from the presence of God. Jesus is directly related to those flames as well, we're going to see. But it speaks of the sevenfold, the perfect ministry of the Holy Spirit going out. So every time you see seven spirits, think of it as the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the way, here's, here's how you knit it all together. Because let me just give you this. It's another reason why the book of Revelation is so important. It is the most Old Testament, New Testament book in the, in the Bible. The most Old Testament, New Testament. There are over 400 allusions back to the Old Testament in the, New, in the book of Revelation alone. 400 times you can knit what's being said back to verses in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. If you look it up, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, it talks about the coming Messiah and the anointing of the Spirit of God. You know what kind of anointing? A sevenfold anointing. Seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit are used in Isaiah chapter 11 to describe the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, anointing upon him. You see how the Holy Spirit's knitting all this together? Okay. Let's go on. So now we see the Holy Spirit and, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. So now here's the third person of the Trinity. This Jesus is now revealed here. And let's, we are in verse, let's, verse 5. Let me just look. He's the faithful witness. Uh, I think just for sake of time, I'm just going to allude to, who is he witnessing to? The Father. And you do have this. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus always brought us the heart and the mind of the Father, always witnessing back to the Father. Jesus didn't come to show off. Can I put it that way? Matthew chapter 12, it says you won't hear his voice yelling in the streets because that's what everybody else was doing as, as insurrectionists. You wanted, to, you wanted to promote your teaching in that day, you go out in the street and you yell, okay, and get, you get people's attention. It said Jesus wouldn't be like that because Jesus was always pointing to the Father. And he's the faithful witness. That's how we see him. But it goes on. He's also the firstborn from the dead. And you need to know this word. I know it's a fancy word. Uh, We don't use it in the English language. But protocticus, it's an important word. If you don't understand this, what the meaning is, then many, many believers have been tripped up by the false teaching, the cultic teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses. And they use this word to say that Jesus is not God. They use this word because it means firstborn. They say Jesus was a human being, only a human being, not God. 
As a matter of fact, they will tell you that he is an angel, the highest ranking angel. Now, there's so much that can be said here because there's nothing new under the sun. There was a cult that had already started in the first century. Jehovah's Witness teaching is regurgitated pre-Gnosticism from the first century that taught, oh, yes, they would come into the church with their, their Greek philosophy and their ideas that, and, and they would Christianize it and say, oh, we believe in Jesus, but we believe that Jesus is the highest ranking A or angel and he created all the other angels but he's an angel he's not God this is what they were teaching and this is the word that you get a Jehovah's Witness person they will sit if if you give them an audience they will tell you geez the Bible says he was the firstborn well there's a huge problem with that number one it is true that firstborn can mean somebody who was firstborn, because it does use this word of Mary giving birth to Jesus, the firstborn. But this is also what's called a Hebraism. It is a Hebrew phrase that is used all Old Testament, New Testament. And firstborn, it's like when you would say, okay, um, your, your, your wife, is it Heather? Is that right? Heather is the first lady of the church, okay? Um, but she's very, very young. She's not the oldest person here, the oldest lady here. So she's not the firstborn of all the ladies in the church, but we call her the first lady because we honor her, right? In the, in the Hebrew, they would do this. They would use firstborn even if you weren't the firstborn, the oldest. As a matter of fact, you have it with Ephraim and Manasseh. God said, Ephraim is my firstborn. But wait a minute, Manasseh was older. Manasseh was born first. Why did God turn the tables on that? Because God said, firstborn means the one who is superior, the one who is looked up to in the Hebrew. It doesn't have to mean firstborn in time. Most of the time in the New Testament, it means the one who is above others. And so what does it mean when John says he's the firstborn from the dead? What does that even mean? Jesus. Now, people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, weren't they? You have this Old Testament. Even Jesus raised people from the dead. Before he rose from the dead, he was raising people from the dead. What was different? They all had to die again. Jesus conquered the grave. He was the first one who not only conquered the grave and came out, but he came out in his glorified body. Everybody else came back in their natural body and had to die again. In other words, Jesus conquered death because the grave had no claim on him. He died for our sins, not for his own. So this is why John, and we're going to see how important this is in just another few moments, when Jesus reveals, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Okay, let's go on. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, we're going to see that Revelation eleven fifteen, one one of the most powerful verses in Revelation. The father says, and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. I believe in the millennial reign of Christ. I can't wait until our last session together, four weeks from now, session five, okay? We're going to talk about the millennial reign of Christ. Praise God, it's coming soon. No more Republicans, Democrats, independents, socialists, forget it. It is Jesus reigns, okay? He's the only party going, all right, on planet Earth. Righteousness and peace is going to prevail on this planet. And we're going to talk about that. And yet, isn't the kingdom of God now? Yes, it is in our hearts. 
We're going to look at that theme of the kingdom of God. But I'm so thankful that he will come as the ruler over all of this earth as well. Let's continue. To him who loves us and has freed us. There's just an exclamation. This is a, a, a place of worship. John begins to break into worship. He has freed us. It's the word lo'o. It means to release. The, the greatest whitening agent in the world, you can't buy in, in Walmart. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. He breaks. It's the word loose. He loosed us from our sins. He loosed us from the chains. And, and, and whereas love is an ongoing, present, active, it means it's constant. He loves us. The loosing part is what's known as eris. It means it's done. It's finished. It's a, it, it, it means in, in point in time, Jesus settled it. And if you identify with what he did in point in time on the cross, that blood will never lose its power to you. But it's not something that has to still happen in the future. It's done already for you. And he celebrates that. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. And has made us to be a kingdom and priest. Now we're going to see that a little bit more as we go on. Because we are called to a priesthood. We're not priests. We don't have priests today. And yet all of us are called to a priesthood. So we're going to look at that theme. It's another one of the themes. Let's go on. To him be glory. Now here's that hymn of praise. To him be glory and power forever and ever. We're going to see words, especially next week when we see in heaven. They're using words like this in chapter chapter 5 to worship the Lord. Glory, doxa, power. Uh, We're going to see a number of words like this uh, attributed to the Lord Jesus. But then it says forever and ever. It's a Greek phrase that means time without end. It will never end. God is a promise for us. And then, amen. Now, just shift very, very quickly. Look at these. The Father. Now we have a third part now. And now it's the Father who speaks. He says, look. He says through John, he says, look, the Father calls to us. This is a very, very important word. It's used over 200 times in the New Testament, 25 times in the book of Revelation, where God says, stop and look at this. Sometimes you'll see it as behold in the New Testament. If you have an older version, behold, it's this word. And it means pay attention now. The, the, the Father gets our attention and says, every eye will, he's coming in the cloud, just like the angel said. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. I believe God has a plan for the nation of Israel. I do not believe that Israel is where they need to be today. I've been in Israel several times. I've spoken with a, a very high-ranking leader there. Um, he was very high-ranking in the army, but a, a believer in Jesus Christ. And he said this, he said, 80% of Jews in Israel are not practicing their faith at all. They're agnostics, atheists, or functional atheists, 80%. But God says, I have a plan. And what you're going to see as we look at the tribulation, especially when we get to chapter 11, you're going to see that part of what's going on during the tribulation, God is dealing with Israel. It's called, uh, Jeremiah chapter 30 speaks of it as the time of Jacob's trouble. And God will use that time to bring the nation of Israel to its knees to cry out to the Lord. But look what happens in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, when they see him, They will weep as one weeps and mourns for their own child, for their own son. They're going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who they pierce. Zechariah says exactly the same thing that is said by John here, by the Holy Spirit, or or here even the Father, okay? 
all peoples on earth will mourn, not just the Jewish people and those who have repented will be, will be crying out in, in, in repentance and giving their hearts to the Lord Jesus, but the world will mourn under the wrath of God. We're going to see it by the end of next week, chapter 6. And by the way, that has to do with the seals. You're going to hear next week something that perhaps you've not heard before concerning the, the scroll. We're going to see a scroll in the hands of the Father given to the Son. That's in chapter 5. And then the Son, the Lamb, breaks the seals. And I'm telling you, the way that you read that will determine everything about how you see the unfolding of, of, of the plan of God. And I'm going to tell you what I believe is the significance of the seals on the outside of the scroll. Okay? Um, but by the time you get to the sixth seal, now the scroll hasn't opened yet because you have to break all seven in order to get in the scroll. But it is a forward look. It's like the preface to the book. And by the time you get to the sixth seal, which is like the culmination of the book of tribulation, it says that the mountains are falling into the sea. The islands are moving. And then it connects with language out of Isaiah and Ezekiel and so on. It's cataclysmic destruction of planet Earth by the end of the tribulation. And it says there that people are going to be calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us. We would rather die now than have to face the Lamb of God on his throne. That's why people will be mourning. And yet, this is what, this is what should break us. This is what, under all of what we're going to see in the trumpet judgments and the bold judgment, it keeps saying this, yet the inhabitants of the earth refuse to repent. They curse God. To the end, they curse God. Some will repent, but the vast majority of people, and it's not even going to be a question. There won't even be atheists anymore. They're going to know that they know that God is doing this, okay? How many know that people are beginning to ask questions today? They're like, things are a little different. What's going on? Christians need to be ready because people are asking those kind of questions. What, basically, what in the world is going on here? Okay, People are asking that, and it's going to be like that during the tribulation. Let me go on. All peoples, I am, now he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In other words, the Father is saying, I am that self-existent one. I am the timeless one. But what's so beautiful about it is this, and it's one of the reasons, again, why this book is so important. It's all about Jesus. Why don't we say that together? It's all about Jesus. Because the same phrase that is used here for the Father, Jesus claims for himself. And he says, I'm the one who was and who is and who is to come. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He will use the same language that the Father uses, Jesus will use for himself. This is why it's so important to understand this book. I'm going to stop there. I don't even want to look at the time, but maybe there are a few very, very quick questions. We come to the end of this section before we move ahead. Any, any quick questions? We're going to continue on, but, but any, any quick questions with the end of this, this section right here? All right? Nope. All right, let's go on. Let's go to what I call the vision of the voice. Um, I don't even have time to look at my notes, so let's, let's just, brother, uh, pastor, if we could... Uh, go to the next. Now we're in, there's another section in chapter one, if you just keep going through the notes. So let's go to this. A vision of the voice. I, John, your brother and companion, I love this. John is about 95 years of age when he's writing this. Now, if you want to drill down on this, um, 
I, I love to roll up my sleeves and, and get into the Word of God. If you, if you want to understand how do we know that John wrote this, where was he, what was going on in his life, in the, in the introduction of Conquest and Glory, I go a lot into how we do know in ancient testimony that this was indeed John the Apostle. So what does that mean? John the Apostle, think about what he saw. He was not just one of the 12, okay? He was probably the youngest of the 12 apostles, disciples. Um, But he was part of what was known as the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, okay? And John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and John outran Peter to to the empty tomb, and John was the one who was there at the foot of the cross when everybody else bailed. In other words, John saw so much. And yet now Jesus, at the age of 95, John is 95, we think he's right about, and we're talking about the year 95 AD, and John is right about 95 years of age. We know that from history because you have to understand this, and maybe we could just bring up a picture of Patmos for a moment because we're going to be talking of Patmos here in a moment. We know this, that, that John's headquarters was the city of Ephesus. In a few moments, you will see and these are, these, this is a picture that I took as we're coming into the harbor uh, uh, to Patmos, again, where I spent some time here, and it was just an incredible, incredible time. And, um, but, but in that day, um, you have to know that, that Ephesus, which is in Turkey today, right along the coast of Turkey, um, Ephesus was the headquarters for for John's ministry for probably decades, okay? Asia Minor. By the way, most people think most of the Bible happened, or the New Testament anyway, happened in Israel. No, not actually. Most of what you read in the New Testament happened in modern-day Turkey and Greece, okay? I love to go. I love to go to Israel. Can't wait to go back. But if you ever have an opportunity to go footsteps of Paul, you're going to be in Turkey and Greece, okay? And you will see most of the New Testament, the book of Acts, and so on. And so John was in Ephesus, and the Roman government hated him, okay? So they tried to kill him. You know how they tried to kill him? And this is not just legacy. There's, there's proof of this. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil, um, he climbed out. <laughs> he, he just climbed out of the boiling vat of oil. So what do you do with somebody you can't kill? They sent him to Patmos. It was known as a, as a penal colony where you would, it was like white collar crime, where, where you, you got to get rid of them. You, and, and they're saying, we can't kill John. He doesn't die. So let's just get rid of him. They said so they banished him to this island called Patmos. It's off the coast. Uh, you won't, well, you'll see later on when we have a map of the seven churches. But Patmos um, is a ferry ride off of the coast of Turkey, actually part of Greece, however. All right? And so today, this is the city of Scala. Um, there are only 3,000 people on the whole island of Patmos. It's about 10 miles long, but this is the major city, all right? And it is a beautiful, beautiful place today, but in that day, it was just rocks. It was mines. You went there. He's 95 years of age, and he's working with a hammer just hitting rocks, okay? There were mines, and that, that was, and they were expected just to die there. 
Well, he, he outlived the emperor, Domitian, and when Domitian died, they let him go, and he went back to Ephesus with the book of Revelation and all seven letters to the churches, okay? So I want you to just get that story. I'm going to pick up on this a little bit more next week, but he's in Patmos. Now, let's go to this next picture. This is a picture I took in what's known as the Cave of the Apocalypse. Now, it doesn't look like our sanctuary because this is Greek Orthodox, but I'll tell you there was a God consciousness on this island. Not evangelical as such. Perhaps I know the Spirit of God can move anywhere. An island with 3,000 inhabitants, and they have 400 chapels. Everywhere you go, you can pray. You can stop along the road and pray because there's something about this island. There's an awareness of God's presence that is there. So I sat and was weeping as I sat in this in this cave. There's very, very strong, very, very early connection to this cave. They think this is where John lived for two years. And he would have, right, right here, that's where they, they believe that, that he, you know, he would sleep right in that corner and so on. There's early testimony to that. Now, um, what did I want to say with this? So he goes back to, let, let's, let's continue on with the, with the notes for sake of time, Okay. Um, he says, I am, I'm your companion, and I love this because he's 95 years of age, but he says, I'm your brother, and I'm suffering with you. He's the one in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. By the way, we think that he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John probably after the book of Revelation. So think about this, okay? Um, you know, this man is still going strong at 95, 96 years of age, okay? We think he died about the year 98. But he, and when he writes 2nd and 3rd John, he introduces himself as the elder, yeah, when you're 95, you can say that, okay? He says, my little children, when you're 95, you can speak that way. But I love this. He says these words, I'm your brother and companion. We're in this thing together, he's saying. On, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance is so much to be pointed out there, but I must go on. On the island of Patmos, it was like Alcatraz. It was meant, you don't get off this island. It is a rocky place, that's it, okay? Because of the word, this is why I'm here, because I am a martyr, I'm a test, I I witness to what I know, and that's why they brought me here on the Lord's Day. Does that mean Sunday? Probably not. There's there's probably no reason to think. I go into it in in, in the book a little bit, but it's very, very unlikely that they were referring to Sunday as the Lord's Day in that day. Okay, um, the Lord's Day probably means the prophetic day of the Lord here. That's probably what John means. I was taken into the prophetic day of the Lord. God brought me into the plan, the prophetic plan. I was in the spirit, and you're going to see that phrase over and over again. It's transitional into one prophecy, one vision after another. By the way, this didn't all happen in a night where he's just writing this all down. Okay. By the way, there's evidence that he had a secretary, a young man, who was writing this down as he was telling what he was seeing. There's some evidence for that as well. That was very well known in that day. Other gospel writers, matter of fact, Paul refers to that times where others are helping him and actually writing what the Holy Spirit's giving him. Okay. But we don't know that for sure, but he says. I was in the spirit. I'm having these visions. God is supernaturally bringing me into the prophetic day. And I heard behind me 
a loud voice like a trumpet. He had heard this voice before, but not like any. This was different. He knew the voice of Jesus, but this time, what does a trumpet do? Man, when you hear a trumpet, it is crisp. You can't deny, you know a trumpet when you've heard it. And he describes the voice of Jesus this way. Later on, he's going to say his voice is like many, polis. It means many, many waters. It can even mean the ocean, the roar of an ocean. He hears him like a trumpet. Later on, he hears the voice of God like rivers or oceans just churning. It is so powerful. He says, I stopped. He, and, and God says, write on a scroll what you see, the voice. Can I just have that picture, Pastor, of a scroll? You need to get the idea. They didn't have books in that day. There was a prototype in the first century. Some of the Romans began to have plates, and they would link them together and close them on leaves. But that was extremely rare and expensive. This is what you would be writing on. They would have scrolls like this. Usually it was papyrus. We get the word paper from that. Uh, there's a whole other story in itself, okay, about how they made papyrus. But um, this is what he probably would have had in front of him, and he's writing as he goes. Let's continue on in the notes, please. Thank you so much, Pastor, for helping us. All right. Um, write on a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. When I read these, these names, I'm like, I've been there. This is incredible. I urge you, if you can, go there. The Bible comes to life when you can you have opportunity to get there, boots on the ground, because you begin to see it and, and identify with some of these things and why it's so important. Um, I'm going to hit the seven churches as we move ahead in just a moment. Let's go. I turn. Now follow this. Verse 12. Highlight it. Whatever you can do. But I turned around to see the voice. Now I'm emphasizing. Look at the italics. The voice. Don't you hear a voice? He says, I see the voice. Please get this. We need a vision of Jesus before we can hear what he's saying. We need to see who he is. Most Christians have lost the fear of God, and they're not listening anymore. I mean, those who name the name of Jesus, you should thank the Lord you're in this fellowship and you have this pastor. Because in most fellowships today, in most Christian churches today, the vast majority of ministers do not believe in the deity of Christ, do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, do not believe in the miracles of Christ. They have lost the fear of God. I'm like, what do you give? on Sunday morning if you don't know Jesus. But we have to understand that John says, I had to see who this was. Now he has a revelation. Let me just go quickly. I turn, uh, um, and, and look at this next statement here, a, a Patmos experience. Think about this. A place of outward struggle, yet inward surrender. That's what Paul, uh, um, John is going through. As a matter of fact, if you have the, the, the book, Conquest and Glory, there's what I call the soliloquy. It's just where I'm in the cave where John was, like within a few feet of where he w was stayed, and I'm writing my emotions, and I'm crying as I'm writing this because I'm realizing, John, you suffered, you know, you, man, 95, and they got you hammering rocks, and, but he's, he's hearing the one who he sees. He's having an encounter with the Lord Jesus, and that's why he can listen so carefully. 
We need to see the Lord for who he is, and then we will begin to hear him like we've never heard him before. But look at the revelation that he gets as Jesus brings, he brings us into a glorious three-part vision of his own voice. And the first is the appearance. I'm just going to read and, and, and go very, very quickly. Look at the appearance. First, first, look at the first part. The appearance of the voice, someone like a son of man. Son of man was the, most, it was the favorite title that Jesus had for himself. You will see Jesus using son of man more than any other. And right away we think, okay, son of God, that means he's God. Son of man means that he's human. It's more than that. In the book of Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision where Daniel sees one coming to the ancient of days. One who he says looks like a son of man, and he's coming to the Father, and he's coming to the throne of the Father, and the Father gives to him all authority, dominion over the earth, and all of heaven is worshiping. They are worshiping one who looks like a man, a human being. You're not supposed to worship anybody but God. This is the God-man. And the Jews over time would begin, and most of them rejected the idea that God could take on human form. That's why they reject the Messiah to this day. They will see him, even, you know, the one who they they pierce his hands and understand. But Jesus reveals himself, and John says, I think he's saying, this is is Daniel, son of man. This is the superman. This is the God-man that Daniel saw, and I'm seeing him. The hair on his head was white like wool. Jesus has a glorified body. He doesn't get old, okay? The white here is not elderly. It means wisdom and purity, his hair. And his eyes were like blazing fire. You ever use the phrase, man, it felt like they were looking right through me. That's Jesus, okay? Penetrating, fire in his eyes. He can look right through you. His feet, he's planted. He's the judge of the living and the dead, and his feet are planted in holiness going on. His voice, like the sound, the polis, it means many, many rushing waters. It can mean oceans. When he speaks, it's like, like, like nothing you've ever heard before. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Double-edged, because comfort to the righteous, terror to the wicked. His face was like the sun. So we get this appearance. He's like none other. His face, John had seen this on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now he gets to see Jesus in his glorified body once again, glowing like the sun. But then he has the next part, the ministry of the voice. What is Jesus doing? And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We're going to have to come to this next week. We'll hit the ground running and talk about the seven churches, which are these lampstands. But this is not like the menorah. This is not like the seven-branched golden uh, candlestick, you know, lampstand in the tabernacle of the temple. This is different. These are seven separate lampstands. In other words, you have a stand with an oil lamp on top. And the picture is that Jesus is walking in the midst of them. Get the seven, the seven again, perfection. You're going to hear me say as we start next week, seven real churches in that day, but it's a complete number. In other words, it represents all churches, the good, bad, and the ugly, okay? But it's represented in these seven historic churches. They are uncanny how they relate to all churches of all times, okay? But Jesus is walking in the midst. Let's look further very quickly. And among the lampstands, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Usually they wore a leather, they would wear a leather belt. Jesus has a golden sash around his heart. In other words, binding up his heart is something different. But the description of what he's wearing is the high priest. 
He's wearing the robe of a high priest. He is the great high priest. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, I want you to see that what he's doing, what's the ministry of Jesus? He's inspecting the oil. He's walking, and he's here tonight by his spirit. And he's looking at every local church, and he's looking to see if there's oil in the lamp. That was the ministry of that priest. And he's looking to see. And I'm telling you, next week we're going to see it right away. Chapter 2 and 3, he reads our mail. As a matter of fact, you're going to understand why that's so important. Because all seven of these churches, and you'll see them. I'm going to give you a map. They're like an inverted U. I've traveled it. (laughs) Uh, Again, my GPS, my mind goes back. Oh, my goodness. It was trying to get me so lost. But I remember very, it was a U upside down. It was an ancient Roman postal road. What God is saying is, John, you're going to deliver my mail for me. You're going to take my mail to seven churches that represent every church that will ever name my name. You're going to speak to them because I'm searching. I'm inspecting my church. And he's going to, he, seven times he says, I know, I know, I know. I'm the one who knows you best. I can read through this. I know the real behind the apparent. Let me just finish with this. We're going to see that he has seven stars uh, and angels. Angel doesn't mean created angel like with wings. Angel, angelos, can mean a messenger. I happen to think, and you can look at it in the book and go deeper into this, but I think that they are, they're, they're the pastors. By the end of the first century, they might have been bishops, which means that they're overseers for the whole city. And I think that, that Jesus is saying, take this to the overseer for the city overseer for the city and let him read this in every one of those in that day they would meet in homes primarily they didn't have church buildings until much later in the second century go and read this in every home in your city but that was the responsibility of the messenger for that city and 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 i love this because you've got churches like laodicea and how many remember god is like you're making me sick i'm going to vomit you out of my mouth and yet he says oh but by the way i still have your pastor in my hand And isn't it beautiful that the church that Jesus said, it's making me sick, received the most intimate promise from Jesus. He said, I'm knocking and I'm knocking and I'm waiting. But if you'll let me come in, if you will open that door, he said, I want to come in and I want to fellowship you with me. In other words, I want you more than you want me. And we're going to sup together, Old English. But it was not just any word. It says, we're going to have the evening meal together. It was a Greek word that meant at the end of the day, when all the work's been done, you don't rush this meal like all the other meals. You sit and you fellowship. And Jesus says to a church before that was making him sick, he says, I long to sit with you and fellowship with you. Heavenly Father, this is your heart. Father, there's so much to take in here, and I pray that every one of us, Lord, if we will take time, Lord, maybe studying this on our own, God, that you begin to speak to our hearts week after week. But, Lord, I need this as much as anybody, I think more than anyone, Lord. Read my mail. Search my heart, God. Search our hearts, Lord. And when we, like John, just hit the ground and, He said, I fell like a dead man. Or like Peter saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. 
you in your mercy touched John and then you spoke to John and you revived him and said, don't fear, I'm alive. I've conquered your worst enemies and failures. I've conquered this for you. Give us a vision of the voice again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now I want to respect our time. Uh, Pastor Jeff, we have quite... Yes. Yes. Sleep well tonight. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Listen, as I was thinking, the next four Wednesday nights will start at 7 o'clock. We'll start at 7 and go an hour and 15 minutes, okay? Because the kids are starting at 6.30 as it is. Some parents got here already. But if we can start at 7 and we'll go to 7.15, that gives a little bit more time. I am, I am just over, are you, are you overwhelmed tonight? Oh, my goodness. If anybody has questions, feel free to stay. I know there's some children to pick up. Please don't leave your children here. Please pick them up. And if you have a young person to go get, you can. If you want to stay for some questions, I know I, Pastor Tom will stay as long as you want. Um, I had one question, but I'll ask him privately. <laughs> okay, so if you need to go, please feel free, all right? But if there are questions, we can interact for a little while here. Anyone? And it doesn't have to just, you know, be from what we've just studied. The text could be anything within Revelation or prophecy at large. Okay. Questions? Anyone? Pastor Fogel. How many warts? Uh, okay. Well, it will have to be in a multiple of six because sevens are perfect. Six is the number that's not good. So probably like 666 warts, right? <laughs> something along. <laughs> and we will talk about that number six as well. Questions? Anyone? Okay. All right, so we'll, we'll, uh, you'll get notes again. Uh, bring, can I urge you, bring the notes. We won't keep repeat, you know, uh, copying the same notes. I would urge you because you're going to have, um, I mean, I'm going to go easy. I could give you, I mean, you have the book, but I have like 100 notes, student notes to give you as well. But I will probably limit it to like 60. But maybe you want to get a three-ring binder. They will, oh, I don't know if we can hole punch them as well and then we can put them, you know, and that way if you bring them with you from week to week, we can refer back. But like next week, um, chapters two and three, we're going to hit the ground running immediately. We really need to get into chapter two and three. But you already have that in hand and then I'm going to give you notes for four, five, and six next week as well. So please bring that back with you. Any questions? Any, any thoughts at all? Anyone? Yes, please. No, okay. All right. The writing is apocalyptic. Yes. So when John was writing this, is this really what he saw? Like when he describes Jesus, see there's swords yes. coming out of it. Is that what yes. he actually saw? Or is that just a description? How he would write it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent question. I, I, absolutely, I would lean towards this is what he actually saw. Because if you look at the Old Testament prophets especially, but then... Then again, look at, you know, what did Peter see with the sheet coming down from heaven with all these animals? They saw some pretty outlandish things, and God allowed that in vision. 
Um, we're going to see one of the most powerful visions next week is chapter 4, where he's lifted into heaven. And he describes, even the living creatures describe with animal faces and so on. So I really believe this is what he literally saw. But God, see, God uses, and I just have to, I'll preface with this. Inspiration is so important. I believe that every word of the Bible is breathed by God. That's what inspiration means. God breathed. But we also have to understand it's both a human book and a divine book. God uses human beings, uses their personalities, and uses different types of literature. I am very, very thankful for David, okay? Because there are some days I'm as... I'm upset, okay? And I need to read David when he's upset and see how we resolve some of those issues. In other words, I'm not coming to the Bible and all of a sudden I'm hearing, you know, uh, angels singing every time I open the Word of God and harps are playing because, you know, isn't this all, you know, just a bed of roses? No, it's not. Real life. And God knows their real life situations and he uses... He uses both human personalities. If you were to read some of what Paul writes in the original language, you're going, oh, my goodness, Paul. Uh, that didn't come through in the English quite like you. You know, it's pretty brusque what he talks about sin and so on. That's his personality coming through. God used that, and I believe God used different styles of literature, and there are like eight to nine, ten even, depending how you subdivide it, different types of literature in the Bible, and God used them like Hebrew poetry. I believe he used apocalyptic literature because the people understood it, but I believe the vision that he gave John was in keeping with that style of literature. He wrote what he saw but it also came when he wrote it in code form so that people would know, ah, this is, that color means, you're going to see that when we go to heaven. By the way, next week we go to heaven together, okay? But you'll see these different colors and, they, and you'll understand why the red, why the, why the emerald green, what, the, to the Jewish people this meant something to them. And so God was relating to them with their, not just their hearts, but their brains, okay? This is being taped. Just like you would do, yeah, it would be on that page. Okay. Yes. Does, you just listen to sermons, right? Does that, Isn't it does that help? Does that address the question? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if there's more, please. I sometimes I'm, I'm not point on, but I if there are, no, that's fine. And 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 I'm good. We'll we'll order pizza and we're we're, we're good. Okay. Uh, other questions? Anybody? Please. Because this honestly, this is the part that I love best. <laughs> 